Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Um, but my biggest satisfaction came from working with characters that I had a hand in creating. Um, always. Sure. sure. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's the same volley for serve every time they go to cast for one of those classic characters movies. It's like you see the same, you know, I do a better bugs than you. <laughs> you know, well, who would know better than you? Should we have him killed? What's what's with that big sign on the side of Warner Brothers now that has it, they put Bugs Bunny back on the big sign that, that when you go down Pass Avenue and it says 200 new cartoons. Oh really? Yeah. As maybe, if as if they as if they have made while we weren't looking. Maybe they didn't okay the movie for for its release and they jumped to they hopped to it and they're going to make 200 cartoons out of it. I it's, just, it's such an odd thing to see because you know they when when we when we did Looney Tunes back in action there was a a, a unit that was doing cartoons that, yes. that, that Larry uh What's his oh, name? Oh, yeah, yeah. Larry, what's his name? Uh, was in charge of. And f- to my knowledge, very few of those cartoons were ever released. There are, some of them are on YouTube. Some of them are on, some of them are on um, uh, DVDs as extras. Uh, but for the most part, I think the idea was that once the movie came out and was a big hit, huh, yeah. then uh, we were going to flood the world with Vin these new cartoons. Bonaventura yeah. well, uh, decided that he wanted that done. And... Uh, they spent a lot of money on it. They did. But I'm trying to Google new I mean, Bugs Bunny cartoons and nothing is coming up. No? Oh, no, this kid's really good. I was talk, I was at dinner with my agent last night, a couple of them, and uh, we were talking about this guy. And I said, gag is in the hate, you know? I mean, who am I to stand in the way of somebody that's a firebrand? I had my time, you know? I mean, I, I will continue to look for original type things to do and if not you know i have nothing to prove but good for this guy he's a young guy he just his wife just had a baby and where did he where did he familiarize himself with these voices uh he was like like me like a, a freak you know we were freaks and uh every editor that i ever worked with said you know what you're the easiest person to edit and I said, why, why do you think that is? And he says, because you have built-in compression. And I tried to explain to him that was the only sound that we knew was listening to those Warner Brothers cartoons through an 8-inch or 6-inch speaker in your mm. TV would broadcast compression on it. Huh. You know, it's true. So it's like you could yell, but you don't want to blow out things. So you go, why are you asking me those things? You know, and it doesn't <laughs> blow out the... The ribbon or the diaphragm. So. Interesting. Yeah, I never thought you sure. That's a skill. I, it's obviously, Clearly it's obviously a, skill. a skill. It's like, it's <laughs> like um, I used to do song parodies. I worked in radio for a long time. And sometimes the real person that you did the parody of comes by the radio station and wants to promote something. So you're like, look what we did. You know, 
And, and all of a sudden the guy said, can I make one with you? I'll just be me. And you can rewrite lyrics to whatever song I did. And I said, that's rather generous. And then when you hear the real guy, it's him, but it doesn't sound like him because you've only heard reproductions of him. Mm. You know, but I mean, I had to learn who certain people were like, uh, my world was George Pal. My whole world sure. as a child. Um, I used to have to sit through those things, double feature into the evening showing of it because I wanted to skip dinner. I didn't want to come home until my dad was passed out because he was an abuser and he was a drunk and a crazy. So I was the whipping boy. So I'd rather live on Atlantis. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, that's the stuff that filled my head day and night. Walk around doing monologues as Paul Freeze, you know. Atlantis, the lost continent. And I, and I used to wish, I wish I could just grow up so I could start my life. Why can't I just grow up? Boom, right now. And here you are. Yeah, but grown up. now. But it's, it's <laughs> and look what it's come to. But, but back then, that was called a misspent youth. I mean, you, nobody was on your side if you were talking to yourself. And, uh, you yeah, know but, what so, I mean? but I think how interesting it is that how, how many people who were sort of marginalized as, oh, he's just a crazy nerd, uh, ended up in positions of importance and ended up sure. being, you know, people who really were, had something to say. But you also find out that these people came from similar circumstances. Mm -hmm. Like they, they didn't even have it on their agenda. Like they had to schedule room to breathe because they'd be uh, overworked or taxed by the family somehow. And, and you wanted to just get away and get involved in something. Comic books. That was the... Yeah. That was the easiest. The word escape. is escape. That was yeah. the easiest one, and uh, and I remember back to people saying, you know, you're just going to ruin your mind. And I said, I said, you know what? I knew in my heart of hearts at ten years old that adults were full of shit, and I was right. <laughs> yeah, ab absolutely. There's nothing like growing up to teach you how true that is. Because because our postmodern culture is marvel. It's not. Silas Marner and uh, the oxbow incident, the crossbow incident or whatever it was. You know, it wasn't that. It just came to not be. Yeah. The classics, Herman Melville. Uh, no, it's, it's about like, it actually, now kids are allowed to be inspired by all that stuff and you'll get some geniuses as a result of it. Because you wonder, where did all the American geniuses go? How come there isn't one, you know? And you find out they're out there. They're already innovating ways to clean up the ocean. Kids. Oh, kids. Well, yeah, kids. But kids they, are, they're, they're, they're not motivated. afraid to dream. I was like, <laughs> you know. I don't know. The thing I like about comic books, we got to introduce the show in a minute, but the, the thing that I liked about comic books, because I was that kid in the, the fantasy movies and stuff, was mm -hmm. th there was an element of shamefulness to it. You had to hide it from the world. I think that actually made it more pleasurable. You did. It was like um, you'd find, you know, like there was one guy in town nearby somewhere who I heard had comic books and I found him just like by divining him or like a homing pigeon. I, right. I had to find this guy with comic <laughs> books and I did. And, uh, you know, he had like one and a half friends. Not everybody was like us, you know. 
Yeah. God, how many years ago? 60. 60 years ago. It was a different world. So, so are, are we good? Okay, good. Well, we've been... <laughs> well, if they do start doing Spider-Verse cartoons and stuff... Oh, wow. Have you seen um, that? I've got to get my bid in for Stan Lee because he makes an appearance. Oh, and yes. I, Let's hear your Stan Lee. <laughs> well, you know, I was going to spend the night with that girl, <laughs> but I don't even know if I should order the continental breakfast. <laughs> I don't know if I'll be around, so thank you for the offer. And those are the dulcet tones of, of the great voice actor Billy West, <laughs> who is here with us. This is the movies that made me with your hosts Josh Olson and Joe Dante. So do we even have to, I mean, you're Bugs Bunny, you're the Red M&M, you're uh, 473 voices on Futurama, uh, you're a co-star in the Netflix series Disenchantment. I I, I, I just want to say two words to yes. you. George Takei. <laughs> um, well, I own a bank. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. How much money you got in that bank? Um, I remember it as Stern talking to him. <laughs> yeah, what do you got in that bank? Come on, be honest. Well, oh my. <laughs> you know. um, and that became a thing. It did become a thing. It became Where a he huge was imitating thing. me doing it. Well, I feel, I feel like that's that was what took him to this place he is now. I feel somehow just that. But isn't that the fun of it? Yeah. You know, what do I care what people get into fads die trends die they come and they go but if you've been involved with a few things where you started the fire yeah you know it's like people jump on and and suddenly the the paper was writing george takei is the new billy west <laughs> <laughs> well he that's, but I that's to, like twilight zone that's why i love it so much i, I, like I hope you i would have to say his george takei is slightly better than yours yes so oh, he's that, been doing that it makes longer. sense. He has been doing it longer, and and he doesn't do any other voices. So, no, no, so you've got true. him there. I got um, him there, but I like the way he writes on his twitters. Yeah, yeah no, he's, he's, he's great. great. He's but great. I really do. I think I think you gave him that second life. I think you opened the door for that. He time. knows it because I talked to him. Good, 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 good. I'm glad he knows it. One um, day I was listening to the radio, and he heard himself, and it wasn't him. That would be just, I don't know, I can't oh, imagine. Well, don't my. worry, there's very little chance that's going to happen. Yeah, no one's going to do it to me. It's uh, impossible. It's, you got you to fade out. You got to say um and on. Got to be impossible to hear half the time. We read your emails. Um, <laughs> He's making a concerted effort. I am making to a enunciate. concerted effort. Um, yeah, see, I'm not, I, I told you before the show, Joe, Joe said you're hosting the show. I never said I'm going to, and here I am. So host already. I'm a writer. I'm host. And then there's also a connection between the two. Let me do this one first before we talk about your connection with Joe. But okay. uh, I was looking at your Wikipedia page because I always check these things to make sure there's something, you know, not anything big that I'm going to miss, you know, what have you. And and there is something big I did not know about you. Um, you, you played guitar with Roy Orbison and Brian Wilson. Yes. How the hell did that happen? I was a better <laughs> musician than I was anything. Wow. And uh, I started playing guitar in 1961. And uh, 
in 66, I remember I had started a band and you wanted to be like your heroes at that age. You had to find somebody. I certainly didn't have any role models from my house. And uh, I, I fell in love with the idea that these people were free to sit down and no, nothing exists in front of them. And then when they, leave, when they leave the room, something exists. They made something real and now it exists and now people listen to it. And, you know, if it wasn't for them, you wouldn't have that. And that was like, that was like having magical powers to me, you know, the creative thing. And, uh, gosh, um, yeah, guitar. I wanted to be like Elvis. I wanted to be like all of the Beatles, but the one that I single out as the most brilliant of the whole era was Brian Wilson, sure. you know, the songs that he wrote. And so m one of my friends, Andy Paley was a music producer at Warner brothers and he, um, he called me up and he said, hey, you want to play with Brian? I go, what are you talking about? Because he produced Brian's uh, first solo album. Mm. And I said, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, down in Santa Monica, there's a little auditorium and there's going to be a crowd there and Brian's playing. And I said, well, God, I know his catalog inside out. And I wasn't a slouch on guitar, so I could pick up any riff that we were going to do. And uh, he was just... I don't know. He's the closest thing to an angelic being that I've ever seen. I played with him about six times. Wow. And uh, at one point, he decided to really acknowledge me. And uh, one of his closest friends said, he took off his sunglasses and looked at you. Do you know how, <laughs> what that means? He likes you. He's taking an interest. But I, but I had nothing but love and respect to this day. Mm. Um, those are the things that shape your imagination. Yeah. I was a drunk and a crazy drug, you know, taker years ago, 30 years ago. And, uh, and those songs, some of the lyrics would echo in my head and I'd walk home feeling sorry for myself, you know, like songs, like I wasn't made for these times. Yeah. And I felt like I was a drunk and a crazy, but I was miles, light years ahead of everybody at this little radio station I worked at in Boston. So I used to just sob home and keep listening over and over, you know. I guess that's ADHD and OCD. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> have, yeah. have, you seen, um, have, have you seen Love and Mercy, the, the movie about yeah, it? Oh, yes, absolutely. Because the thing that really knocked me out about that, I've never thought about it, I guess it was kind of trite observation, but you think about you know, the Beatles going on at the same time and they have this beautiful bubble where it's the four of them, incredibly collaborative and supportive. They have an amazing producer who believes in them, is taking them everywhere. And Brian Wilson, that film just really brought home to me that Brian Wilson was alone. Everybody- He was a one-man Everybody army. around him was trying to make him worse. They were, stop doing this. Just give us shitty pop songs. And he managed to make music in that environment that challenged and frightened the Beatles to get better, which is amazing to me. Yes. They, think about they, what he could have done if he had that support mechanism but that's the best thing that can happen in this world is it, like you gotta see what we go see what brian's doing you know yeah listen to the acetate oh my yeah. jesus oh, god we gotta you know <laughs> we gotta get on the ball yeah he's really on stick that one yeah you know and then over there brian couldn't wait to hear this song eight days a week right and he was going nuts yeah yeah um they it's used to cover those songs for just for their own amusement Man. They didn't lay down too many of the Beatles. It's an incredible yeah. relationship. Well, but, you know, the world is so much bigger now. 
Yeah. It's vast. Yep. And um, it's hard to find the people you were meant to be with. But I, but I believe if you hang in long enough, you'll wind up being comrades of certain groups of people and, and you see yourself in them and they somehow see themselves in you. Um, and I believe in that. I think even if it takes almost your whole life to, to be with somebody that's sitting in front of you, it was well worth the trip. If you somehow just feel an affinity for them or, you know, artistically. Yeah. I'm <laughs> Jesus. Grab it up there. <laughs> Wait, the scribe is talking. <laughs> that was that was. You lovely. talk, I listen, scribe. That was lovely. Um, but I also wow. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, you've also you've got a history of working with uh, with Joe on. Um, yes, but not. I am. I'm, I'm a blip on his long dead list of radar. I, really. Come on. Um, but you directed him as Elmer Fudd. I did direct him I, as Elmer Fudd, and he was an exemplar Elmer Fudd, which is, you know, not the easiest thing to be when you, because, you know, from Arthur Q. Bryan on, you know, Elmer is a very specific kind of voice. And have you ever and seen him? Arthur in Q. Bryan, I have seen him in old movies, yes. And old he, movies. He, and, and there was one movie where almost every voice person from the old, old days was in, and one would be a carpenter, you know. Where should I put this board? <laughs> you know. Oh goodness gracious! You well, know, it's I a felt thing pretty is, good. It's such a <laughs> subtle little voice, but then he's the most interesting character in the world, Elmer, Elmer Fudd, because he could go from zero to sixty. Mm-hmm. You know, like a Bugatti, he would go. He'd be like a three-year-old. Shh, be very, very quiet. I'm hunting rabbits. <laughs> and then he would go, all right, come out or I'll blast you. <laughs> Say your prayers, rabbit. You know, I mean, that's like, I mean, I, there's nothing funnier than a brain dead hunter. Where's <laughs> the hat Where's with the, the hat? little, the you know, little boy ear protectors. And <laughs> to, to turn into a screaming maniac. To me, I used to be like, where did that come from? That's for, yeah, yeah. I, Eternally I, fascinating, the things we got to experience. And, we, and here's something you will know about is the day and age that we come from, you're, you happen to be watching just by pure coincidence or accident, the coolest thing you ever saw in your life. All of a sudden, this desperation started to crush you because you knew in about 10 seconds, the coolest thing you ever saw in your life is going to go away forever. Uh. You would never see it again. You you didn't know how to even find out how to see it again because there was no no way us mortals could keep records of what we loved unless it was released. What on uh, what was that Viewmaster? <laughs> oh right, Viewmaster. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, but the desperation is like you'd go to school the next day and say, "I just saw this cool show, The Man from Uncle." It, it, did you see it? No, no. Let me show you how it goes. (laughs) Right. And I would remember reams of dialogue and I would impersonate like Robert Vaughn and, um, you know, whoever I could to try and recreate it. That's what I was desperate to do. And I have a friend who is an artist. He's also a filmmaker and he works at Fox. Um, Not anymore. No, that's (laughs) right. (laughs) He works at Disney now. You're going to be working for the mouse, young man. (laughs) 
There's going to be a girl that looks like a dental assistant with a fuzzy pink sweater and a brand new engagement ring <laughs> telling you how the creative process works. Jesus. Yeah, in case we are Honest recording this, God, what, over the day Nickelodeon after that? At Nickelodeon, I said, you know, where's your boss? I, I am the boss. You know, what did you just get out of college? Did you just... What do you need to get in here? Grass stains <laughs> and a number two pencil? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, these kids, uh, Joe. I, yeah, I know I, it gets worse. I know. No, these, no, kids it, it, today. these kids. I, I really, I have wanted Joe to tell this story for so long. Um, it, it's, it's my favorite. It really is in so many ways. It's a small story, but it's my favorite horrible Hollywood story ever. You, well, you know the one. And it's, it's not. A, it's, it's, a, it's, it's about it's, your Bugs Bunny movie. It's a horrible Hollywood story, but it's only it's far from the only one. No, no, no. But there's something about it that's just perfect. It, there is, a, there is a certain perfection to it. Uh, I. I when Chuck Jones passed away, uh, you know, he was not a big fan of uh, the Space Jam movie because he felt that the characters were not being treated with enough respect or accurately. And uh, I was offered this uh, movie, Looney Tunes Back in Action, which was um, supposedly the next Space Jam movie. And uh, I accepted it mainly because I felt that I, I could help keep the characters real and not have them go out of character and do things that were uh, not part of the the Warner Brothers legend uh, that had kept them alive for so many years. Uh, and so even though there were a lot of issues and a lot of problems with the script, and uh, I, I discovered after I took the job and, and hired a wonderful animation director um, uh, from uh, Eric Goldberg, from, who had done Aladdin, uh, and he, he took care of most of the, the cartoon Stuff and it was a cartoon. It was it was a cartoon live action hybrid, like Space Jam had been. And most of the knock against the movie is, well, why why bother to do that? Why not just make a cartoon movie? And Warner Brothers had made a number of cartoon features using interstitials and pieces of old cartoons and stuff, and Daffy Duck on Magic Island and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. but they were never really very satisfying. And this was an attempt to actually tell a whole story and to intermingle the cartoon characters as if they were real with live actors. And it's Roger Rabbit-ish in the sense that it's, it takes place in the movie business. And of course, without Roger Rabbit, they probably never would have made any of these pictures. But mm -hmm. uh, And so the idea was that uh, Brendan Fraser played a studio guard who uh, happens to uh, be a, a, a double for the real actor Brendan Fraser. And it's, it's a very complicated story and, 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 pretty, and, and a pretty silly one. Uh, but it does have a lot of a Warner Brothers. We jammed in almost all the Warner Brothers characters that we could think of from the old cartoons, and many of which were some way obscure to the audience, but we managed to find ways to use them. And, and we're, we're very, very loving uh, in our treatment of them. And uh, the problem was we were working for a studio executive who admitted he didn't like cartoons. And uh, the reason the picture was being made was because the marketing department wanted to Gee. wanted to make <laughs> Never sure heard that, that wanted to make sure that the char that the characters were being exposed. And uh, so, 
uh, I was taking notes, copious notes and orders from people who admitted that they would never walk across the street to see the movie if it came from some other studio. So that created a certain amount of tension. Uh, anyway, we, we, we managed to managed to make the movie. It was, it was very difficult because technically it was a very difficult movie to make. And, um, we put together a, a rough cut and we showed it to the, to the studio. Uh, and they insisted on having a preview right away without finished animation, which is the kiss of death. Uh, and so we, we had this preview and it was, you know, the, the audience was confused and didn't understand what was going on half the time and why wasn't it all finished. And, so they decided. They immediately decided the movie was in trouble. The one thing that, that you can you can take away from the movie business is that the first thing that you show the executives, that is the movie. If it's not finished, if it's not good, if it's if it's got missing pieces, it doesn't matter. That is their impression of the movie, and that will always be their impression of the movie. It will never get any. They're different. married to that. That's that's the movie. The in preliminaries. Their heads. So obviously, this movie was quote in trouble, and it was I might add an extremely expensive movie. Certainly the most expensive I ever made or ever will. And uh, so they decided that the, the, the best thing to do was to call in outside help. And uh, so we took a print of the movie and we, put, we sat at the end of a big boardroom table and a lot of people who looked alike sat together with these yellow pads and they're going to be making notes and we we're going to go through the movie and make all these notes and fix it, supposedly. And so a, a major... Hollywood screenwriter who had happened to have won an Academy Award was was entreated to come and watch the movie with us. And obviously all eyes were on him because whatever he said was obviously good because he had an Academy Award. And uh, so the, the picture comes on and Bugs Bunny walks into frame and he says, what's up, Doc? And the guy says, whoa, whoa, stop, stop. And he presses a little button and freezes the frame and he says, does he have to say that? <laughs> and it, it went downhill from there. How could it? Yeah. But nastiest little spoiler. The problem, the problem is that if you're making a movie for somebody and you're making a different movie than the one they think that they want, or maybe they change their minds during the making of the movie as to what they want, then the, then the pressure is, well, can't you make what it is that you shot into what we want? Mm -hmm. And the answer is usually no. Uh, or you've got to spend a lot of money reshooting things. Uh, and very often they will be at odds with other things in the movie. That, because, you know, movies don't, they don't just appear. They have to be thought up by writers and they have to be directed by directors and edited by editors and shot by DP. And, and the, the executives... I'm not belittling them because they have a tough job and there's a lot of pressure. But if you're not on the side of the filmmaker, you really should get out of the business because there's no, there's no business without the filmmaker. And very often, too often uh, in this business, particularly on movies that are expensive, um, the, the entire raison d'etre of the movie is thrown out the window uh, to appease some egomaniac who simply wants what they want done, uh, regardless of whether it's good for the product or good for you or even good for them, because there's just a need, as dogs do, to pee on trees. And if, if you're an exec, if you're a filmmaker, you have been peed on by an executive in this business somewhere along the line. Mm -hmm. And, and, you, and it's, it's inevitable. It has to happen. It's part, of the, it's part of the process. And when you look back at all the great work that was done, 
in this industry from the silent days on and how many of those pictures are actually good and how many of the Warner Brothers cartoons, which luckily Leon Schlesinger wasn't interested in. And so basically let the guys do what they wanted if it wasn't going to get censored. Um, they, they, they were able to create a whole world that was consistent because there wasn't a lot of people telling them, you know, put this in, put that in. My wife says this, you know, it, it's, it's, if you, you hire somebody to do a job, let them do their job. And if you don't let them do their job, then you should be out of the business. Right. It reminds me of the, um, oh God, the, uh, Borst story where the writer, the director and the producer go in. <laughs> To uh, That's such an old Yiddish story. restaurant, and <laughs> Russian restaurant, whatever, whatever works best. But um, they order borscht, and they all get served. And the writer, <laughs> this is perfect borscht. And then the director picks up his, and he goes, "It needs a little salt, just a little." And the producer stands up. And takes out his dong and pisses in it. And then he goes, now it's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> there are variations. There are variations. Well, you would yes. know all of them. I have not, I've never directed anything except. I have to, and I feel, like, I feel like someone has told the desert version on this show. It seems to be I one think that. It that, sounds that, like Landis. But the parables that came yeah. out of the reality of what was going on makes for very interesting discussion and very. Um, intriguing reading sure. like when you start to read about what some it's like uh marlon brando they needed to have a big name for the superman movie and it says well just get brando oh yeah, god yeah the stuff he put them through he's got <laughs> he's got ideas okay fine what are, you, what are you waiting around for what are you waiting for christmas get him in here and and people were talking to him and he goes first of all i think that people from krypton should look like bagels. <laughs> <laughs> he really did. He thought, why would they be human-like in any way if they came from this distant planet? And he really like was clinging to that. Well, you know, if you think about it, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, uh, an idea. Yeah, <laughs> but I think I think he had this beautiful way of. Taking everybody on a merry little goose chase, you know. He knew, yeah. Yeah, to just like it's like Trump, you know. All you got to do is upend everything, and say, "I don't want to do it unless I look like a bagel." I mean, that sounds like <laughs> that's that sounds like something Trump would say. It's too clever. Yeah, it's too clever. I need to dress up like a bagel. <laughs> but but those are beautiful. The the things that you hear and, and directors and writers, you know, that were on the scene talk about it. Um, I know this is uh, trailers from hell. And, uh, and I was thinking about all the stuff that I think a lot of us types could relate to. Um, what world were you in? You know, I lived in my own world. I'm sure you probably did. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, I had a reason to escape, you know, cause it was hellish growing up. And, uh, I used to wake up in the middle of the night at one o'clock in the morning on, on, uh, in Detroit, Michigan in 1961, there was a show, of course, late night called shock theater. Mm -hmm. And I lived to be shocked 
because was, was there a host? Uh, not it really. Of, it was okay. a skull that would come in, and the eeriest music I ever heard was playing. And to this day, I've been looking for that music cue, and I can't find it. Ugh. I put it on Twitter. If anyone knows about this 10-inch record collection uh, vinyl, uh, I'll even give you the name. It's like The Dark of the Moon and some other title. Oh, Hypertension. You know, all those cuts had titles. We'd never mm -hmm. know them. And uh, no luck. Uh, people do remember it, though. And I would wake up at one in the morning and I'd sit in front of the TV and chills would start going down my spine and I'd feel this hand on the back of my head like, you're going on a joyride, Mr. Man. You know, it was, it was like sacrosanct. It was almost like, I don't know, like a ritual mm -hmm. because I would be totally removed and this music would play and then the beginning of the movie would start and it would always be a movie like The Curse of the Mummy or all those universal uh, beauties. You know? Are you like hunched over and playing it really low so nobody yes. hears you? Yes, for fear uh, of yeah. death. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but but it was like, I'd rather die at the hands of a mummy than at my dad's, you know? And um, that's the stuff that stayed in my head. But there were other movies. I, I mentioned in the beginning, George Pal, any, yeah. anything was the way I could run away. Well, those movies had a lot of heart though. They sure did. His puppet tunes did. Mm -hmm. The uh, boy that has to go to war mm -hmm. and face the realities of war and the people that are left behind that love him and want to see him be okay. And, you know, you could really identify with all those beautiful feelings. And those puppet tunes are actually available, uh, you know, in a, on a DVD. There's a whole, oh, there's, there's, there's a couple things that yeah. my friend Arnold, Arnold Leibovitz did a thing called the uh, puppet tune movie. Uh, which is a collection of, of puppet tunes. And I understand they've been restored. And um, if you go on Amazon, you can find them. And they're really quite remarkable. And they're all replacement animation. It's not quite stop motion. It's like replacement heads. Um, and uh, he, st he started out making them in Holland. Really? And then, and then uh, you mean they, they each head would be slightly different. Each head, there'd be a head with different expressions, and they would they would inter interchange them out. And uh, for, how many uh, heads would it take? A just lot. To do a and, and it's it's a, it's it's an amazing uh, exacting. That's why I loved Ray Harryhausen. Yeah, it's similar. But the, and also the inch, like with Ray, it was, Micro and, inch. and Willis O'Brien. These were they were their personalities were put into their work. You know, it was one one man, one monster. Right. And, uh, and, and other people did stop motion and some often, you know, quite well, but, but there was something about the way that, that these guys did it, the O'Brien first and then Harry Hosen, uh, and also because they were masters of lighting and the, these, these, these models that they are working are always incredibly well lit. And, on the, and, and there's and, a life going on underneath that clay. Exactly. And we believed it. I was not willing to believe anything else. Except that that captivated me through uh, uh, twenty thousand miles, and it was and, it, and twenty and, million miles. And yeah. Ray's, uh, you know, later in life, came to realize how many people uh, had been moved by the stuff that he did, and you know, uh, he was because he worked for a rather penurious producer named Charlie Schneer, who did, sort of kept him away from the publicity part, and and uh, he didn't didn't want to let him know how popular he really was well you know where that comes from you mentioned it earlier is egomaniac it's like that stupid little guy over there 
that will never make as much money as I do has magic, and I don't. But I can use it. But I can use it. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But that's the age old, you know, that's a uh, proverb, parable. I don't know. But, but George Powell, it's on my mind because I saw this movie in 1960 or 61 called Atlantis, The Lost Continent. Mm -hmm. And the things that they provided you to see and hear uh, were the greatest things I had ever seen, you know. Uh, right there in the theater and I sat through it so I could just wrap my mind around it. I wanted to get every little thing out of it. Like I, um, I knew that I was seeing something that I would remember for the rest of my life and, and all the things like the giant death rays and, and having ancient submarines that look like fish and they were made out of like welding, welded, welded bronze or something. And, uh, it it just blew my mind that that who are these people that do this? Who gets to do this? You know, and I and that's the time when you want to run away and join the circus, um, which you did in a way. Yeah, yeah which we all did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we all joined the circus. But and it's cold out there alone. <laughs> Anybody will tell you. Um, you know, it's like you got to be the your biggest fan club. You know, it's like what's wrong with just being obsessed with the time machine. Another George Pal movie. Yeah. I thought that was the coolest thing I ever saw. You know, and they just kept coming. This is the early 60s. I guess we were, we had a new lease on life as soon as we put a man into space. It was suddenly the soaring 60s, the jet age. The supersonic age. The supersonic yes. age. And, um, you know, it, it just was good for everybody's morale and to see these things that we could that were so fantastic and fantasy oriented and sci-fi there were through lines of things that every me and every schmo in that theater could identify with not just the grandeur and the and the the things that don't even exist yet you know you you had the like the love affair between this actor named Anthony Quayle Anthony uh, Hall Oh, no. Joyce Hall was the woman. Yeah, Anthony Quayle's... Uh, no, Anthony Hall, I think, is the name. If, Anthony the guys, Hall was a Tarzan. Well, the guy's actual name was Sal something. Oh, was it? Uh, yeah, and they changed it. To, I, I thought Joyce's it was Anthony Hall. Name and was then Joyce... Rosenblatt. <laughs> who's this? See, see who's in that picture. I thought know, it was wait, which take, one? wait a minute. Atlantis. Atlantis. I'm looking up... Uh, I thought you were taking calls. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm talking about... This is boring. Um, of course, I'm researching you know, as we, we could, speak. If we, <laughs> cuts a lot of this out. if we could take a call and there was a young person listening, they would tell you that you guys are the luckiest people on earth. I mean, when I think about it, all the greatest things that, that ever were already happened and, and we don't get to see it. And, and they'll tell you that they got gypped. Well, you know, I don't think they're wrong. <laughs> I don't. I don't either. Yeah. Um, Anthony, but Anthony Quayle's an actor. Yes. Yes. Not, was, that's not him. <clears throat> okay. Edward Platt was in the. Edward movie. Platt was in the picture. The chief. Barry Kroger was in the picture. Um, here we go. Here we go. I've got my handy little John Dahl. John Dahl. John Dahl. William Smith. 
Good Lord. Edward Platt, the great Platt. Bert Mustin. Barry the, Kroger. The professional old man. Wolf he was Barzell, the Jane Avella, Paul Fries. They are great. So give a, who's the, the name of the lead guy? Sal Ponte. So that's his real name. That was his but he was billed name? as Anthony Hall. It's Anthony Hall. There you oh, are. Wow. Oh, I'm so... It's, I've, I've, ever since we started doing this show, I'm waiting for somebody to stump Joe. And and I I, I thought you were going to be here. No, uh, you, you what, I just got girl. here. <laughs> what are you trying to do? Make me feel unwelcome? Wasn't the girl's name Joyce Taylor? Joyce, Joyce Taylor. Taylor. Yeah, you are right on. Screenplay by Daniel Mayweather. You love this guy, right? Yeah, Daniel Mayweather. Um, there was one other thing that went on in there. Well, of course, Paul Freeze. Now this Wolf Barzell. He Frankenstein's daughter. It wasn't his <laughs> voice. It was Paul Freeze's voice. Oh, well, they Paul just used this grisly. Paul Freeze dubbed a lot. Where are people. you going with my daughter? You know, he was the accessible Orson Welles. Well, he was uh, half of Tony Curtis's role in, in Something Like It Hot. He, really? Was, whenever Tony Curtis is talking in a woman's voice, that's Paul Freeze. Wow. Did not. And Paul Freeze did the voice of John Lennon in the Beatles cartoons. That's right. Al Brodax. No, the TV ones. Yes. The the awful. But I mean, (laughs) but how, what a a crazy, the the time, the showbiz time space continuum Mm -hmm. of Paul Freeze being the voice of John Lennon. It's like it's poetic. Two worlds (laughs) (laughs) smashing into each other. And that's probably why it didn't work, or one of the reasons. But Boris Badenoff is John Lennon. <laughs> <laughs> wow! <laughs> and then in Dark of the Sun, where he Dark of the Sun, who does he, inter, he intermittently dubs the Nazi guy. He's, yeah, inter- and you I can don't know tell what the difference. story was there. I mean, either the sound was bad, and the guy they couldn't get the guy to come back, or something. Yeah. I mean, who knows? But it's a radical difference. It is. Sometimes he opens his mouth, and he's this German actor, and sometimes you're going as a kid, you're going, "Is that Boris Badenoff?" <laughs> I think it was um, Bill Scott, who was the voice of Bullwinkle. Mm. And he used to do these incidental voices, you know, like, look, Edney, there's something you don't see every day. <laughs> Clyde and Gidney. Yeah, or whatever. And uh, and uh, he would be these, these people. And I, I couldn't figure out who he was because he, you were told he was Bullwinkle. But I said, they got this other talented guy in the mix, and I see this name, but I don't, I never heard of him. But God, you were listening to him every day. Yeah. Every night. And those voices are so, and every now and then you'd hear, who's the guy who did Speed Racer? Was that, um, because he did all of those. The Speed Racer and Marine Boy, and and this is terrible. I'm, I'm glad you don't know, because I, and every now and then his voice would show up in a live action film and it just, it, it, it had this bizarre response from me I, where I just. I think I know who uh, you mean. Oh, we're the we guys. can't figure are, it out, cut it out. Yeah. Oh, you're gonna <laughs> Here, the, I'll, I'll look it up. You're going to get the Weisenheimer machine <laughs> exactly. that knows everything. And here's the great thing. And then I cut it and it makes it sound like we knew. Well, that's nice. <laughs> but otherwise, we'd we be like. do it live. I that's why you're it. not taking calls. Peter yeah. Fernandez. Yeah. I've oh, yeah, yeah. I've heard his name plenty. He just died a couple of years ago, I think. And, yeah, and he was Racer X as well. And also in Atlantis was Frank DiCordova as yes. the court wizard. And he was he Wild in, Eagle in F Troop. That's right. He specialized. Eat these balloons! <laughs> 
It's nope. Like I, I said, I just got to be somewhere near this bunch of people. I mean, so you see them in different, like in Gun Crazy, mm-hmm. John Dahl um, was in a scene where there was a guy holding a shooting contest with like right. a, a, a cowgirl, you know, like a Annie Oakley. Yeah. And John Dahl is like, he's handy with a gun and he's beating the pants of the skirt off her. You know, by his fancy shooting, and uh, and the guy who was the contest uh, judge played Barry Kroger. Oh, that's him. Yeah. Okay. Then he was in the House of Fear in Atlantis, who turned men into animals, beasts of burden, and um, it it was so cool because here they are in a movie that was made in 1950. Right. And. John Dahl played Zarin, you know, the warlord of whatever he was. You know, he was the guy that picked fights, wanted to take over the world. And and then there was um, the House of Fear guy. So they were in... Barry yeah. Kroger I think was it, 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 it shows a certain career trajectory, which is probably not favorable for either one of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, 10 years later, they made Atlantis. Well, Donald yeah. had just been in Spartacus. Or no, he was we in Spartacus just good. after that. But it's like <laughs> William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy being in an episode of The Man, Man from, from Uncle. Uncle. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Which was my favorite show. I mean, yeah, yeah. I clung um, to that. That was an amazing well, it's show. It's now out in a full size Set. Oh, there's the, a box. All it of comes the in a case. I so, have it. It's got. Yeah, I have that. It's well, like a it's silver. Even, it's even got the movie versions, which were somewhat oh, to different. Trap a spy, yeah, and, but which had separate scenes for overseas stuff. Right. They're a little bit racier, racier stuff. Have I told you about my drinking problem? No, I thought <laughs> I thought it was pretty apparent, but I <laughs> I, I, I realize this. Year, I haven't done it in a long time, but but here's my drinking problem in a nutshell. I can always tell every now and then I'll be out with somebody. And, you know, we're having a few beers, a few drinks, and we're talking about something. And sooner or later, we get around somehow to some great television show that we grew up on. Mm -hmm. And I have a few more drinks, and we get more and more. You know, say it's Man from Uncle. Oh, my God. Remember this one? Oh, remember that one? Remember this one? Oh, that was great. And I go home, and I want to see Man from Uncle. I can't. And I wake up the next day, and everything's fine. I go about my life. And a couple days later, a package shows up. And I have apparently gone home and I have found <laughs> not just an episode or two, but I own the complete run of uh, Man from Uncle, the complete runs of the Dick Van Dyke show. I mean, these giant Black, boxes. Doing your where you blackouts. Have, all of Get Smart, you know, because I hadn't seen a Get Smart episode in years. I just wanted to see a Get Smart. Well so I buy all. Oh, and they're great. They but Rubber garbage. <laughs> That's the second time they pulled that on me this year. <laughs> But that that's it. That's how it manifests. Other well, you people, must have quite a lot of room in your house. I have, I have one giant room that's just DVDs and Blu-ray well, your, and stuff. Your and, goal now that you can have it and own it, this thing that was so nebulous as a teenager, yeah. um, you can't wait to show it to other people just to watch yeah. their reaction. Like, have you ever seen? No, I never saw that. I remember uh, I Spy. I have all of those. Yeah, they were pretty good. <laughs> they were great. They, they were, were pretty great. good. Well, the other thing too that that I and this is not I'm, I'm hijacking this. I apologize, but no. um, I, I grew up. My parents were divorced, and I would alternate weekends at my dad's, and he had a TV, and my mother didn't. 
and which oh, was so you'd much rather go to dad. But the worst thing in the world was when your favorite TV show was continued next week. Oh, oh. So I have all these episodes. And I remember when I got to get smart things and I completely forgotten this. There's an episode where it ends. It's a cliffhanger. He goes to bed and they drop a tarantula on him. By the way, worst thing that ever happened to my life was finding out tarantulas are not poisonous. Because think about all the TV shows and movies that oh, hinge Because on. it was the most formidable looking. Yeah, the yeah, biggest and, <laughs> and, and it had been decades. And I had never seen how the Get Smart ended where they dropped the tarantula on him. And I, didn't I, they freeze frame stuff? Because they, they freeze frame and then, yeah. They didn't want to show any real stuff. So they'd freeze frame the last second. And yep. Come next week. Next week, yeah. That's where they got, oh, that's where they, that's where they got the joke for Police Squad. Right. Yes. Yes. Because the frames used to end uh, on Police Squad, except they weren't. Really, they weren't actual. They weren't actual stand frames. Still. Everybody was just standing still. <laughs> That's so cool. Um, that thing with uh, Get Smart, uh, it had a brain trust, a comedy mm. brain Buck, trust. Buck, Buck Henry, Henry and Mel Brooks. Buck Henry, Mel Brooks. Yeah, it's yeah. And uh, Don Adams is a funny guy. He was a funny guy. He and had a plot again. Platt. <laughs> Ed Platt from Atlantis. See, it everything all, comes it back all to Platt. Comes it all comes back to Platt. I got to go to this Atlantis. <laughs> Is it still there? Yeah, it's a gambling casino, right? <laughs> but I think that's on one of the, um, there's a great uh, British Blu-ray company. Um, um, Arrow? No, no. I'm uh, Network? And then, Would you stop? It's I'm helping. Indicator, Powerhouse. Oh, I meant that. Uh, and they do some, but they've, they put out, I think, um, three sets of Harryhausen, yeah. uh, collections, three really? box sets, yeah. all this stuff's in there and they look And incredible. it's, and they're, they're, uh, they're region free, I think. Oh, are the, those sets are? Some yeah. of them are. Um, their, their Curse of the Demon set is, uh, which has got four versions of the Oh, that's movie. an amazing, yes, in different aspect yeah, ratio. Yeah, it's and, great. Um, but they do incredible work and they have you, you you can't believe how many of these films they have in these boxes and and they look gorgeous you know you think all that stuff is going to go bye-bye and it never really does and because we we're buried in records of ourselves thank god well yeah. we are but you know we there still needs to be a lot of work done to save some of this stuff i mean everything that's being saved on digital is uh you know everybody says well now we've got it but we don't no yay must kill <laughs> it's president. not an episode unless joe's phone goes off <laughs> And then I dub the funny voices in when he answers, you know, the, oh, yeah. the, the Charlie Brown voice. Hello. <laughs> what is it, mom? You know damn well what it is. Mom, you're calling me in front of a, a show. I'm in front of a show? No, you're not in front of it. I don't, see, I don't know what I'm saying. You knock me off my feet when you come out of left field. Oh, well, remember that. Okay. <laughs> So was that my mom? I don't. It would have to be long distance. Was that your mom? Yeah. Yeah, really long um, distance, like from heaven. Oh yeah, my mom, mom passed last year. I just talked to mine yesterday. Well, lucky for you. Well, <laughs> you can hang on to every second. Yeah, yeah. Of it, but don't hide it in the cloud because I'm telling you, it's not going to blast. But I will. I will say, and this was to, to get back to another thing she did. I remember as a child. Let's talk about traumatic. I remember her watching her. She threw away my comic books. Oh. Watched her do it. I, I think everybody. Sort of that's the that most story. horrible story I've ever heard. Almost well, the, everybody has their comic books gone when they get home. Yeah, no, she, never. She, you uh, never actually well, see she, them. I it. hid them. She found them. She got much. 
I mean, to the point now that, like, I send her graphic novels and she reads them. But I had the greatest the, – the movie I got nominated for was based on a graphic novel. And nothing more satisfying than that phone call where <laughs> she goes, you know – I've been meaning to say this for a long time. Maybe but I shouldn't have maybe I shouldn't thrown out those comics. And I, but you know, maybe if she hadn't, you know, what? if she that hadn't, was you could be a rich man. Because you could have sold you those comics. That was yeah. became the grist for your mills to battle back from exactly. that emotional I'll scar. I'll show you scar tissue. <laughs> exactly. I guess spend the rest of my life, mom, thanks to you, cutting through scar tissue. But I'm right. going to do it. I'm going to. I'm going to do I'm it. doing it for you. Because I get the wherewithal. Because one day you'll be sorry. <laughs> You make your mother sorry. All I did was thank her for putting up with me when she was well, that, uh, that heading too. for the last roundup. But um, yeah, those Harryhausen films you should check out. They're, they're I would love to do that. So gorgeous. Um, um, I I was thinking about uh, the man from Uncle because mm. I actually was in a movie with Robert Vaughn. Oh wow! And I I was telling him, you know what it is when you talk to these guys, you think it's 1964 all over again yeah and it's like the last junk in the world they want to talk about you know? it's <laughs> like you know who, they had you know who was ago? like that Burt ward would get insulted because we say and you Bert, of course you were uh robin i know the boy wonder <laughs> <laughs> yeah but what else was Burt ward that's the problem there wasn't a lot of i'm other doing stuff other things about. you know but he's not i was he, on the gus wiki show in tampa last week <laughs> <laughs> and I did the impression for Adam West and he cracked up laughing. He says, that's exactly what he sounded like. <laughs> he was in the second movie I ever worked in. Burt Ward was, was in. It's a really obscure, really terrible I met movie. him. You know what? He's got a heart of gold, that guy. Yeah. Because he, he takes care of animals and a lot of the, the time spent is rehabbing animals i think oh, or wow, okay. caring so actually for, doing something for the world yeah isn't it funny <laughs> you know you think you're gonna do everything for the world when you're 30. no you did everything to get laid <laughs> at 30. yeah yeah but you were a director <laughs> i did it to get laid <laughs> you, you became a voice actor so you could get laid yeah you sure that's the story all right yeah, I was I a nerd. Like the, 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 the dumb star who slept with the writer. Hey, hey, <sighs> hey. Well, star, yeah. Um, uh, borscht. But, um... <laughs> you get borscht for dinner. <laughs> hey, what are we talking about? <laughs> uh, what else, Billy? What were the other ones? I mean, what were your, what were your favorite... Um, um, what was your favorite George Powell film? What was the one that, like, you saw the most that... Uh, and now you you saw these in theaters, right? Yes, right. So, oh, oh, I was no, no, okay. no. So oh. he's he's talking about these these formative impressions that were made when yeah, he was. I was at the watching a big window. screen. I, I need to listen. Yeah. Obviously, uh, I was at the ticket window for the time machine. Oh wow! And going in there, I mean, it was a ritual. It was thrilling to your heart and your soul. You know, you'd be all tore up from the floor up if you, once you sat down in that, that velvet seat with all the rotten gum under it and <laughs> sticky floor, you know, too many Pepsi Colas. And, uh, but it, you don't care. Nothing. You're bulletproof when you're And how many times there. would you see a picture in its first run? Oh God, I would, I would go on Saturday and I'd sit through the movie like three or four times which you used to be able to do i know yeah, people, people don't realize that because now it's now they kick you out after the first show but when there were double features 
the, the phrase, where, this is where we came in, came from the idea that people used to go to the movies and just walk in and see whatever movie was on oh, and yeah, then stay yeah. through the entire show. And then when that part came on again, they go, oh, okay, well, now we can leave. Yeah, that's all right. Uh, but, but in the old days, you could, if you wanted, stick around all afternoon. And I, I got, uh, when I went to see a double bill of uh, The World Without End and Abbott and Costello Meet the Mummy in 1956, <laughs> my, uh, I, they were such great movies. Yes. My, my favorite, if I had to relive an afternoon at the movies, that's the one I would pick. Uh, the problem was I liked them so much that I stayed to see them twice. Mm-hmm. And by the time I came home, my, my parents had called the police Yeah, because they didn't know where I was. Well, so yeah. I, I was not allowed next week to go see Hollywood and Bust, which was the last Martin and Lewis picture. Oh, yeah. I remember uh, that. And I was crushed for years because yeah, that, well, they, were, they, were, they were such favorites of mine and but they had broken up, up and this was going to be their last movie. That was like, you know, it's hard to experience that stuff. Because well, it was, it's not the same experience. I mean, you have to see it in a theater with an audience. Plus, you needed the emotional resonance of that particular year. And that week, yeah. whatever happened, because people would go to the theater to just dream. To well, dream. It was also an elusive form. You didn't know when you'd get a chance. To ever see it again. Once this movie leaves the theater. It wouldn't be on TV for years. And then if you didn't see it right away on TV, That's you'd have to wait more years. I saw the movie The Time Machine. Oh, I didn't see it. Rod Taylor. <laughs> and then you're going to tell him the whole time. Rod Taylor, <laughs> he's a, a scientist and he, and he creates a time machine. And it can go backwards and forwards, and he knows it's going to work. So he built a scale model of it to show his his uh, astute colleagues, you know, these other professors. Like, now what is it that you say you have? You know, because everyone talked like they had a board up their ass in those days. <laughs> they really did. I don't yeah. know where they got that. Say, what's wrong with you fellas? Yeah, it's such a strange artificial affect. You're right. I know, but it, it's like. I'm all over the place, but there's this school of a lot of people that wanted to be dignified in the movies and and develop an acting style came from the Midwest. So Good to put that. You, you heard a lot of, oh no, mother, get the phone. You know, phone. <laughs> Say, how would you boys like to make a little doll? <laughs> doll? Oh, I made my doll. I'm out. <laughs> yeah, it's like the OL. Oh, no. <laughs> and it's like, once I told my friends, I said, just listen, go back, yeah, backtrack and listen for guys to say, oh, no. I, I was on the phone, what, three minutes? Yeah, I loved it. it everybody was like civil, but the Midwest was showing, which... To me, created a style. Yeah, is that where? Okay, because the one I always love is "Say, Say." Yeah, everybody remembers yeah. that one. That that just well, we were civil. Yeah, <laughs> and "Say" was like, let me ask you. But were we civil, or was it just? The, I remember we I were remember taught the, civics. The, the revelation for <laughs> we me when civics. when I start, when I saw my first pre-code <laughs> movies. And, and I realized how much of my perception of my grandparents' world had come from movies in which people slept in separate beds and never said certain words. Ah, and all of a sudden, you're watching a movie from 1930 where a guy, guy comes a, from a threesome a, to go to an abortion. The guy took know? a run-out powder. Yeah. <laughs> it's just so and you weird. realize the Pre-code. movies lie to you. Because um, a, a Catholic boy 
uh, going to church in the early 60s, they would post a list of movies you were allowed to oh, see and movies you were, to, you were yeah. not allowed to see. And it's just how insane things were. It's like all my favorite movies were on the B. The B list was morally objectionable in part. That's what it meant. And then there was Condemned, which was like well, that's how you foreign movie. movies. But, you know, I mean, well, the but, movies... you, but if, if, a lot of people's parents wouldn't let them go right. to see but, but, Brides of Dracula because it was on the B list. I would argue that's one of the greatest marketing techniques because all you want to see but I now is to what's see, on the B list. I wanted to see Atlantis and I didn't want to watch Song of Bernadette. Right. <laughs> I didn't give a dismal damn about Bernadette. And I don't like religion that was being shoved down my throat. But do you know that the... The Monsignor of the parish would get his frilly frocks on, and, and it was Saturday night, and he would go to the local theater and plant himself in the doorway to the entrance and quizzing people if they were Catholic. Are you a Catholic? Um, yeah, we are. Do not come in here. And he would send people home. <laughs> it was the, the, the manager hat. Yeah. I remember his name. He was this old Russian guy named Monsignor Prokrivka. You know? It must not have been very popular at the exhibitor conventions. <laughs> well, but no, he's already already in the theater, so. Well, he's. You already bought your ticket. Oh, he didn't buy a ticket. Well, no, but I'm you saying. You can bet he didn't buy a ticket. If he, he probably figured out. Hey, I'm trying to find I'm, an angle whereby they don't have I'm not going up against that guy with the stupid wastebasket hat. <laughs> You know, what is that wastebasket those guys all wore? Yeah. <laughs> and the smoking pocketbook. <laughs> it looked like a purse that smelled like incense. And they wave it around. Wow! <laughs> I, I can't get over him. So he would do, what would you leave the theater? Would you get your money back? What was your. Um, no, you wouldn't even pay. You would, he, 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 oh, you'd you say would, the door. Don't buy the ticket. He ground you up before you could do it. Before you get your ticket. Okay. All right. That's, yeah, that's and you and I was a kid. You they know? used to make you stand up in church, you know, and make an and uh, make a pledge uh, on Sunday that you will not go see uh, movies on this list. You but know? during and, the mass, you had to stand up, and then they'd say, "Sit down, okay, kneel." <laughs> you know, it was like uh, it's like an est meeting. <laughs> You know, it was an indoctrination yeah. procedure. Getting dangerously anti-clerical here. Hey, it's a good time for that. It's a good time for that. The um, No, I just I just feel like somebody should have, if they didn't take advantage of it, you pay your local church to put stuff on the forbidden list. You you say it as if it was such an inducement that people would, that would increase the box office. These, these, there weren't that many people going to these theaters. That's right. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. they needed every person they could get. They still had paper balls back then. <laughs> they weren't real. Oh, I, yeah. <laughs> oh no, I can't see a movie like that. <laughs> oh no, what do you think, honey? Oh no. <laughs> so wait, so let me ask you. So, so when you're, because I want to see how this connects to to you know who who you turned out to be. Well, well, that's did, that's, did still, you, that's that's still happening. Yeah, I mean, do, when you were when you know you'd go see say Atlantis and you're talking to a friend, are you starting to do the voices too when you're talking to your friends? Yes, did that absolutely because it was this desire, this actually desperate desire to recreate what you saw that you thought was the coolest thing you right. ever saw in your life. So, what about the cartoon voices? When did you start doing them? Um, well, television only had three channels. And the fourth channel that we got in looked like a blizzard. 
you know, but you could but that's the one that had all the good stuff on it. That's the one. It was out of Canada. It was CKLW Channel Nine, and they showed all the Warner Brothers stuff. But they had such shitty copies of it. It was all protons by the time they showed it on TV. You know, you just watching this. You know, what is that? What am I looking at? A planetarium? Plus bad reception, so you get the ghosts. But I would hear those voices, and, mm. I, and I had an awareness of who Mel Blanc was. I also had an awareness of who Dawes Butler and Don Messick were because of the Hanna-Barbera cartoons. You know, I mean, to learn Because the they language, were prime time at that point. Yeah, in 1957, I think, the first Huckleberry Hound was shown on TV in syndication. And, uh, you know, again, that stuff disassembled me molecularly, you know, molecularly. And, uh, and I used to say, who are these people? Same thing. How do you get to how, you know, cause everything was bleak. Right. Know? Everything was bleak. Every move you made was planned out somehow. So it was a fast jump from doing the voices to going, I want to do voices. Um, I was never it? consciously thought about that because because oh, okay. you know what it was is nobody will tell a kid you know your friends are giving you a hard time and and you could do the most amazing damn thing they ever saw or heard in their life right and they'll go yeah you know and and i said why how goddamn good do you have to be to impress these mooks and it's because you are this painful and constant reminder of something that they will never, ever be able to do. Mm. You had magic. And all of a sudden, instead of liking you, they'd hate you. Oh, no. And I couldn't understand where this hate was coming from. You know, getting chased home and, mm. you know, uh, what's up, Doc? You know, people yelling at you. Ugh. But that just, that just solidifies your desire to do that, right? To come back. And I knew, I knew that, you know, it's like, did you ever choose consciously to be who you are? No. I think it's like something came along and grabbed you by the shoulder and you just said, I'm I'm going with this. I don't know what it is. I don't know where I'm going, but this is strong. Yeah. And uh, it's not like I ever chose, you know, I just kind of followed my, my whims, I guess. But you, but I always felt like, boy, I got a lot of nerve wishing to get out of my two by two inch square world, you know, with my teachers and my family and, you know, and then you grow up in a world where the only thing that matters is comic books mm -hmm. and what, what knocks the earth on its axis is every time a new Marvel movie comes out. And it was all the stuff that was worthless junk, according to yeah. the people that you were supposed to respect and listen to. Well, like I said, you know, I, I somehow on some level said, these people are just full of shit. They just make it up. I swear, they just make it up to watch the expression on your face. You watch your face, all the blood drains out of it when they say, <laughs> you're not keeping those comic books for much longer, Bill. And, and I'd be like, how horrible is this? Did you have to acquiesce to this junk? I wanted to run away so bad. Um, God. I was so frustrated that <clears throat> I would just take off. I was a loner, and my dad found a cute little nickname for me, the Lone Wolf. <laughs> yeah, where'd you go today, that's, that's Lone original. Wolf? Out in the woods? What are you doing out there? <laughs> and I, I had to have like some sort of little figures 
that I would get from here and there, like toys, G.I. Joe or whoever, even a Barbie. But then it read as the optics were that I was playing with Barbie dolls in the middle, middle of the woods. <laughs> it, was, it would incense people. I just, um, and now it's like, it, you know, we need heroes. And it's so funny is that uh, none of the Marvel people are going to save the world. But in, in its own way, it, it saved millions of people from like suicides and depression and giving them hope even though you knew that someone wrote it and somebody was filming it and you know slate gate you know all this toiletry yeah. you got to go through to see an image but uh, you know i just i just knew that those people were out there somewhere and you know what half of them said to me when i finally sat down with those people june foray um, God, uh, Mr. Slate, John, uh, Stevenson, uh, they all basically said, well, we were saving a seat for you, you know? <laughs> and I thought, what a, I don't know, it might've been a stock line of everybody, but I, I was struck by it. And I said, that just seems so heartfelt that everybody's gotta be the new guy. And, uh. And they welcomed you with open arms, mm -hmm. except once John Stevenson, Mr. Slate, yelled at me because I couldn't say the word, the state Oregon. He goes, Oregon, <laughs> you know, Flintstone. <laughs> you know, I'm getting yelled at by Mr. Slate. <laughs> and Mel Blank bawled me out once. Oh, no, for what? Because I was over exuberant. I was at one of his lectures at a, an old wooden assembly hall auditorium in Worcester, Massachusetts at a place called Clark University. And Mel Blank is going to be there. I happen to see it in the Boston Phoenix in this little corner of the page. Mel Blank is giving a voice and slideshow tonight in Worcester. And I had to beg, borrow just to get a ride. You know, I didn't care. It was like tunnel vision. I got I have to see this guy. And I didn't think I was going to meet him, but, uh, he did his whole bag of tricks and you were sitting there. You'd be swooning, swooning, watching a master yeah. of his craft that he pretty much created. You know, it's like you can either be a genius or a madman, but both live in a world created by their goddamn ego. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, but that's OK, because that's how the world gets new things all the time. But uh at the end of it, he, he saw us all and we were like, we're getting ready to bid this miracle goodbye. <laughs> and he goes, uh, if anybody wants an autograph, uh, just you could form a line over here and I'll get to you. And I jumped up and I was like body slamming little kids and like checking <laughs> them into the boards like a hockey player, you know, because I lost my head. And he goes... Could you let the little kids go first? You know, and it was like Yosemite Sam and Bugs and Daffy and Foghorn Leghorn yelling at me. But it was beautiful, you know? That's fantastic. Otherwise, it would have been no stories like that. Yeah. You know, yeah. there's a point in your life where you don't have to make up junk <laughs> just to make people think you're important or that you were a goofball or whatever you came off as. Well, we think you're important or else we wouldn't have had you on our show. And I thank you very exactly much for that because I have, I have love and respect for you. You know, I do.
Well, thanks for coming, Billy. Well, yeah. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much. Are we done? Well, I guess so, yeah. We're not going to just... talk about 12 Angry Men. <laughs> can you do all 12 of them? No, I can do Lee J. Cobb. You saw the look in his face, didn't you? You saw the look in his face. Look at the color of his skin, for Christ's sake. <laughs> Our show was recorded in beautiful downtown Burbank. For the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the movies that made me. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast.